0: Good evening friends and welcome to Dulce Midnight Radio 5. Um, we are joined tonight by Mark Pilkinson, author, writer, uh, multi-talented guy really. He is the author of Mirage Men which is probably my favorite book on the UFO phenomenon and he very kindly agreed to swing by and just chat about a bit of everything really. However, my schedule being what it is at the moment, I'm kind of slammed getting everything finalized and finessed for this next big series that we're doing. So unfortunately, I couldn't actually uh, be there on the call. So Bradley stepped up and agreed to host this one. And we are hopeful we can get Mark back in a couple of months time and do this again, but with three of us. So yeah, housekeeping's out of the way. Please enjoy they're up there tonight, right now.
1: And I think there are some reasons to support that idea. Like what? I think they stay away from big cities. I think they wait for people to get together in one place like tonight. And when everyone gets out of that game, they're going to be gone. I think they like people alone. And I think they talk to people with some kind of advanced radio in their sleep
2: like you think they did with your son
1: i didn't just think this up i think at the lowest level they send people on errands they play with people's minds they sway people to do things and think certain ways so that we stay in conflict focused on ourselves, so there were always cleaning house or losing weight or dressing up for other people. I think they get inside our heads and make us do destructive things like drink and overeat. I've seen good people go bad and smart people go mad. I think at the highest level, they do things that cause nations to go to war, things that make no sense. And I think no one knows they're being affected. We all work out other reasons to justify our actions. But free will is impossible with them up there.
3: Something happened to me last Thursday when I was driving home. I had a couple of miles to go. I looked up and saw a glowing orange object in the sky. Suddenly, there was intense light all around me. And when I came to, I was home. What do you think happened to me?
4: What do you think happened to me? My name is Mark Pilkington. I'm beaming in from a very wet storm-battered wiltshire in the west of england uh situated uh, equidistant uh between uh avebury and stonehenge stone circles um and yeah i'm very happy to to be here
2: i i would um I would introduce yourself so, I would introduce you as the author of Mirage Man, but I know you're interested in a lot of other stuff. We when we first started talking, we didn't even talk about UFOs. Mm. Um how would you prefer to introduce yourself? What, uh, what who um, is Mark Pilkington?
4: <laughs> uh well funnily enough, we are many. There are many there are multiple Mark Pilkingtons and I I keep a close eye on all of them. uh the one this one I'm yeah, I'm pre- predominantly these days publisher I re- founded and run Stranger Tractor Press uh, along with Jamie Sutcliffe and that will be 20 years next year which is pretty wild. In 20 years already? Yeah, insane. Wow. Um yeah. so in mean, so that takes up most of my time um but yeah 10 13 years 14 years ago um I wrote a book and co-made a film, uh, Mirage Men, which was a um a sort of inv- investigation and a kind of a sort of pulpy investigation into the kind of use of uh UFO lore and UFO events in uh sort of influence operations and psychological warfare. And deception operations and that was well received and was kind of a done thing and then to my great pleasure in the and and and, and um uh gratitude in the past few years with the kind of seemingly never-ending ufo flap that began in 2017 i've kind of been reactivated and I'm, and I'm enjoying it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, you are. Yeah, I'm enjoying it. I didn't th- I didn't know if I would and I was reluctant to get back involved for a few years, to be honest. And then I just started meeting people like yourself, a lot of really smart people who um, had become interested in the topic but also the wider themes that, um, that Mirage Men touches upon and I sort of, you know, I feel very grateful and enthused, but I also, you know, I hope that I can possibly be of use and uh, kind of helpful in people's exploration of the subject and their understanding of it. And one thing that's always struck me as surprising and a little kind of concerning is just the deep lack of, historical awareness that seems to permeate in the kind of more, um, you know, pulpy fringe uh, uh, edges of, of kind of um, uh, whatever you want to call it, the the, the sort of um, power culture or, or culture or such thing. It depends. You know, there are a lot of incredibly smart people in there, but the, the, yeah, the voices and ideas that all too often get traction and attention seem to be entirely ahistorical, so I'm... I mean, just briefly on that, the, um,
2: I couldn't believe, I mean, so with this David Rush thing.
5: We're all going against the wind, the wind's 120 knots to the west. Oh my gosh, dude. Wow! We have all seen these blurry videos of unidentified flying objects. Video evidence, if you will, that old tales of UFOs may not all be conspiracy theories. In recent years, Congress starting an official U.S. government Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force, recently renamed the All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, or ARO, and now, in a News Nation exclusive, David Grush, an Air Force veteran, former member of that task force, and veteran of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, is formally blowing the whistle on secrets he says no one has ever shared publicly before.
3: You are one of the most trusted former intelligence officials in the U.S. defense and intelligence establishment. Yes, I was. You were trusted with the most intimate secrets. Yes.
5: Grush sitting down with award-winning investigative journalist Ross Coulthardt, who's reporting for News Nation and has spent years reporting on the UFO question.
3: What conclusion did you come to at the end of your time on the UAP task force? Uh, the UAP task force was refused access to um, a broad crash retrieval program. When you say crash retrieval, what do you mean? Uh, these are retrieving non-human origin uh, technical vehicles. You know, call it spacecraft if you will. Non-human, exotic origin vehicles that have either landed or crashed. We have spacecraft from another species. We do, yeah. How many? Quite a number. You're kidding? No. I thought it was totally nuts, and I thought at first I was being deceived. It was a ruse. People started confiding in me. They approached me. I have plenty of current former senior intelligence officers that came to me, many of which I knew almost my whole career, that confided in me they were a part of a program. They named the program. I've never heard of it. And they, they told me, based on their oral testimony, um, and they provided me documents and other, other proof that there was, in fact, a program that the UAP task force was uh, not read into. Don't want to talk about this long, but,
2: um... I could not believe how many people, like how, how he wasn't just dismissed out of hand after bringing up the 1933 Italian UFO crash. Not known to many people, but like long debunked hoax. I, I understand that you've done a personal investigation into this.
4: Uh, to a limited extent. I mean, I actually, my biggest concern is I may have contributed to distributing the story um because i don't even it must have been around eight years ago i against my better judgment agreed to go on a A any channel ufo program and they wanted me to talk about those documents um so i contacted some serious and sensible Italian UFO researchers I know who immediately just said oh yeah this is this is like Italy's mj12 papers yeah. although it's different in that they actually don't we know where the mj12 papers came from I don't think they really can demonstrate where these uh, Mussolini papers came from they know that uh, they know who distribute you know who who perpetuated the story but to, to uh, Italian ufologists in the early two thousands, but where they picked up the papers, whether they created them themselves, is is unclear. Do you have a theory? Not really. Um, I don't know enough about that. What you know, the Italian world, you know that it's not improbable, but that um, and i and if you'll give me a sec, I'll look up the... Names uh, the two ufologists. See, this is why that, one I that just, they made them themselves. Because I'm tired, but uh, yeah, it's, it's. I think it's not implausible that they might have had a hand in generating them themselves. I mean, but I mean it's not without precedent, like uh, yeah. Bill
2: Moore, etc.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's that possibility, but yeah, I went on this. I I didn't actually end up watching it, but it was a very strange experience doing this tv show they flew me out to venice and i was grateful for that Oh wow and that's kind of why i agreed to do it. <laughs> I thought, well, I'll get it get a couple of days in venice but this and i said to them up front from the beginning i just want you to know that these papers are known hoaxes and that's all i'm prepared to the only way i'm prepared to talk about them right and there just came a point where and it was a strange i'm not really a you know, I'm not a front man. I, I, I don't really, you know, I'm not an articulate presenter or whatever. And I'm certainly not media trained, but they wanted me to do to camera stuff while walking around, which I find weird and difficult. That is weird and difficult. There came a point where they just sat me down and for three or four hours basically wouldn't let me leave a room until I'd agreed to say that the documents might be real. <laughs> I just couldn't do it. And I was like, well, look, you have enough material here. You can cut me to say whatever. Yeah, yeah, that's annoying. uh, That was generally my experience of doing TV stuff.
2: I mean, you bring up playing a role in um, a possible role in just the information about this reaching a wider audience, Hmm. Um, which is just a shame that that's the case now. But last time I read Mirage Man, I was thinking about this because... The impetus for Mirage Men, the entire project. I mean well, first of all, did you plan to write this book before John decided to do the film?
4: No, we we kind of um once we'd agreed we were gonna do the film, I thought, well I'll write yeah, you know, I'll write the book as a Perfect. kind of companion to it. Yeah, so it wasn't um I I was you know this was now a long time ago pushing over 15 years ago that discussions first began. And I I'd had one book. I, I was at the time writing a weekly weird science column for The Guardian, Guardian paper, yeah. which now seems crazy that I did that <laughs> for three and a half years. And the small book was published, collecting those, published <laughs> by dis, appropriately by Disinformation Press. And, this, <laughs> and I was kind of just trying to work out I wanted to then write a a whole book and, um, I knew, you know, the, the Mirosh material I knew well, and it just kind of made total sense. But the, the thing was that at that time, nobody in the British media world wanted to talk about UFOs or wanted anyone to talk about UFOs. It just was a toxic, dead subject. So it was difficult. Um, even with, you know, with the, uh, uh, whatever angle that the book had, which was, you know, was, well, uh, until was initially absolutely new. And then by total coincidence, Greg Bishop's project beta arrived on my desk, like there you go. Yeah. two months into us starting work and, which was a great, you know, I, which I didn't know was coming. So that was a nice. You know, I saw that as a good omen, and I knew Greg, and he's a friend. So yeah, um, he's a, uh, his his
2: wisdom in Mirage Men, like sort of like walking you guys through your journey into disinformation and paranoia, just so good.
4: He's great. No, Greg is a is a is a is a hero.
2: The reason I bring this up is because, um, I mean, every time I revisit Mirage Men, uh, new things stand out. Hmm. Um, revisiting again in sort of preparation for this, one thing that really stood out to me this time was um, your first combina- uh, conversation with John at the restaurant.
4: Oh, yeah.
2: Um, when, uh, to be clear uh, for listeners, John was an adept crop circle maker. What's his last name? Lundberg. Lundberg, yeah. uh, who you covered for 14 times and then befriended and then started making crop circles with him, correct? That's
4: right. And, yeah, he and uh, another... Uh, kind of conceptual artist Rod Dickinson were make were run, basically heading a small team of four uh, crop circle makers, and they invite Rod was um, actually doing a kind of re, this would have been around two thousand uh, sorry nineteen ninety five or six. Rod was planning a kind of reenactment of um jim jones's white knights to do as a kind of performance oh wow and i met him through that and was that's so cool wanted to work you know be involved and cover it for 14 times and then we became pals and then he's like "Ah, you should come out <laughs> come gotcha. and make some crop circles and i just got it's it was a Kind of one bizarre and wonderful and magical thing to be involved in, which I ended up doing for almost 10 years. Oh, after, really?
2: I didn't know it was that long.
4: Yeah, where I live now was the kind of epicenter of where we would work and other people. So, although we don't, there are no more, there aren't really crop circles anymore. But I, I was just going
2: to say, has anybody picked up the torch?
4: Not really. There was a crew when we first moved here, what's nearly seven years ago, there would be like one or two appearing each year. And it was fun to go and see them and see them kind of, you know, from an audience perspective. as it Right. Um, and what I liked was that they had, because I guess they were younger people who were kind of starting out from the mm-hmm. beginning, so they'd gone back to a kind of old school technique and everything was relatively simple I, I think the kind of my as the kind of back in the you know to mid to late 2000s designs just became overly to me became overly complex and too human and lost kind of just became more like graffiti you know agrarian graffiti
2: i've always likened it to graffiti um, yeah
4: and which was fine but it was not it, it lacked the kind of mis- the enigma. I think that the more abstract kind of natural formations had. So yeah. these guys, whoever was doing this stuff here, yeah, you know, a few years ago, was had pulled stuff right back to the old school kind of you know early '80s designs, but- and that was that was great. Um, but yeah, no, they're not still doing them. Nah, it's a shame. Um, but it it is a shame. It's a ni- you know, it was a pleasure to encounter them. But I also, you know, the world has moved on. and yeah. out They got much attention for them, which was one of the motiv- motivations for doing them in the first place. So,
2: the, um, so, so back to uh, the impetus for Mirage Men is you are getting a, having a meal with John, and John says, I've been talking to a guy from the CIA. Yeah. Every, everything the man's told him so far has panned out to be untrue, uh, and then the CIA man says, you should make a film about Richard Doty. Yeah. And, this and got- then you made a film about Richard Doty. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
4: Well, I got—I think I got really, because I knew that Doty's story. So I just got, and it always been, you know, one to me, one of the key pillars of what was going on with, the, yeah. Yeah, with UFOs. And still- mean, it's,
2: it's, you can't really pass up that opportunity.
4: Uh, no, it was just, A, what a crazy idea, and B, actually... Incre- you know, an incredible idea. And at that time, Doty had absolutely vanished off. You know, he, he had pretty much vanished off the face of the earth in terms.
2: Of- and then all of a sudden, he's just very happy to sit in front of a camera.
4: Yeah. So it was, um, our initial idea was literally we were going to make a whole film about looking for Doty and we with no expectation right. of ever finding him. It would be like um, um Oh God, I'm not. See, this is where I'm fuzzing. Uh um, no, you're good. Uh the anyway, yeah. It would be yeah, you know, one of those documentaries where someone goes looking for a a person that never finds them. But the the, the like, one that
2: came to mind was searching for Sugar Man.
4: Yeah, so for Sugar <laughs> Man they're searching for uh in search of Margaret Thatcher. Nick Broomfield, sorry that's his name, remember. Oh, I haven't heard of that. Uh, but uh yeah, it's a whole genre of documentary the kind of where the, the story is the is the journey and the people you meet along the way
2: so does this imply that um that Doty was in some sort of contact with the cia at the time
4: no not at all no he was a you know a, 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 a new mexico cop um, right. at um grants new mexico he was not i mean he claimed to be doing work for the home for Homeland Security, he may have, you know, may have been called into this stuff occasionally, but I don't yeah, think he was. It's in... hard
2: to take him at his word into anything now, yeah. yeah. He
4: was, um, uh, you know, I think he was socially in touch with some of the old, um, Avery guys like Kit Green and John mm-hmm. Alexander and. Run pandolfi the guy we were talking to i'm sure, yeah had some beef had i think had personal beef with him but i don't know what that yeah i don't know yeah either, think,
2: in uh, in some of our earlier correspondence you brought up um hold on i think i have the direct quote right here uh, you you said that you suspected that you and John may have got caught up in the earliest stage of discussions that led to the development of the Advanced Aerospace Threat
4: Identification Program in 2007. Can you expand on that a little bit? I do actually, I do wonder if that was something. um,
2: It would make sense. I mean, there's, talks about DIA presence at the place. I mean, the, um, just sort of. Yeah, it's it scans in my brain is ringing true. Yeah, the,
4: the timing is is kind of perfect, um, and it was clear we were because we when you know we started in two thousand and five by two thousand seven eight, we had spoken to a lot of people. We were in contact. Yeah, you know, we were doing slightly crazy, not crazy, but stuff that you know, just approaching people out of the blue who were probably not used to being right the blue, um, at that time. Uh, so people were definitely aware of who we were, well, what we were doing. And I think it was basically the first stirring, you know, we were at a time when no one was talking about UFOs, but this, you know, Tip project was starting to percolate and take shape Yeah, it must have been. People would have been going. So who who are these two British journalists contacting? A lot of the people that we're talking, yeah, who are involved peripherally in this project and asking them about UFOs. No, I I I wonder if the rumor was spread that we were like MI six or what have you, British intelligence, and maybe that was to. I thought at the time, I thought that was just to stop discourage people from talking to us because you couldn't afford to take the risk. But now I wonder, again, was it to keep us out of, you know, keep us out of this circulation of, you know, the sort of streams of communication going on around ATIP. And we, we met a lot of weird people who didn't make it into the book who were definitely involved in the kind of wider network of people with money and influence and contacts in the political sphere who were pushing a UFO agenda. And they they were people you, some of the, I don't really want to mention names, but names I haven't actually heard since, which is weird because they were just so prominent in that circle at the time. So I wonder Are these like, like Bigelow adjacent people? Possibly. I mean, the thing was Bigelow, you know, we knew... I knew about Nids. Uh, ironically, I get Bigelow. I, I called Bigelow Kevin Bigelow in the book, but <laughs> shame. Uh, but he wasn't such a prominent. He was Nids was a big force at the time, or had been, but Bigelow himself kind of kept kept his distance. Mm-hmm. But a weird thing I remember from, and I'm can't rem- it, it, it's in the book, but I can't remember the name of the conference. But we went to a conference in Vegas solely to interview Linda Martin Howe in two thousand and
5: eight. Mm-hmm.
4: I remember being in the hotel That's bar. the one
2: that appears in the film, right? Yeah. Yeah, she that's was not the, happy with you guys.
4: <laughs> not the main one in the film, but that's the in, the interview that with Linda Martin Howe that appears in the film, but the main a lot of the footage in the film was at uh, was in um Laughlin, uh, Nevada, not Nevada, not Las Vegas. Anyway, you we went I remember hanging around the bar in las vegas just chatting to people and overhearing a, there was a group of quite big kind of well-built guys and they were talking about how mufon do you remember that you may not remember at the time mufon were developing a kind of strike team to be sent in at very short notice yes yeah,
2: they had like the cop car
4: right to um you know to in be present after UFO events. And I think these guys must have been connected to that, but they were talking about how they MUFON on, uh, were selling their papers. And that was the, yeah, you know, that was the sale of thousands and thousands of, um, case reports to, to, um, um, Bigelow to the Bigelow group. So I kind of over, and that's, again, that's all the basis of ATIP. So I, I kind of felt, yeah we we were brushing into this thing that was happening at the time and um yeah i don't um obviously the other thing that happened at that time just before then was the serpo you know release of non, of kind of you know uh et uh, kind of uh sort of mythologizing but again i wonder you know, still nobody's been identified as the source of that. And we know who is distributing it, but we don't know who wrote it. And again, I wonder how that fed into what, you know, what started off as ATIP and is and, now... And we're, we're
2: generally pretty sure... Cause, I mean, you bring, bring up in the book something about IP addresses and them being in Albuquerque. Oh,
4: mm, no, Doty was unquestionably helping to distribute the material, but I strongly do not think He wrote it. He wrote it. I don't think he was able to have written that. Man, um,
2: these, these authors who write these things, like we were talking about with the Italian ones, with this, with like the Umo papers.
4: Yeah, the Umo material is interesting. And then another one was, um, uh, APRO, which was an attempt in an attempt to inf- by far right group like Umo basically around the same time, late 70s, early 80s, an attempt to infiltrate. Recruit British ufologists into kind of far right politics. That's, I mean, there was no suggestion of that with Serpo, but and also, I mean, the Umo stuff. There's, there's a lot of material there, but the Serpo stuff. I don't know there's a lot. There's probably an equal amount with Umo and Serpo, but yeah, it's wild. Who is there, is there really? Yeah, there's.
2: A, I did not realize that.
4: Yeah, I mean. We'd have, uh, I would check, but I'm pretty certain there are reams and reams of stuff. And like Serpo, there were, you know, at least a few, you know, two or three hundred thousand words of material. Someone basically wrote a long novel.
2: Do you still keep in contact with a Mirage Men character and uh, Operation Serpo emissary, uh, Bill Ryan?
4: No, I've lost track of Bill. I yeah, I think everyone... I don't think he's still... Is he still... I don't even know if he's still active in, in the kind of landscape. Um, I,
2: I have no idea. Maybe he transcended.
4: Yeah. I, I, I mean, I sort he's, of... To be honest, I see... Grush as a you know as a kind of Bill you know a Bill Ryan esque figure I think he's t- totally being, understand that yeah he's being well he's being he is being voluntarily manipulated yeah he's he's basically you know he's that he's the Mirage Men's best catch
2: exactly yeah emperor, yeah, yeah yeah he you know, um, uh, yeah yeah I, I feel like his story is more sad than anything.
4: Yeah, yeah, and he's clearly a genuinely decent, you know, pro- person who's had a lot of curveballs. He's dealt with a lot of shit and is, I you know, has found something he can throw himself into and kind of immerse himself in. And it brings meaning. Yeah, it's 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 spiritual. You know, yeah. there's, no, there's no doubt about it. And and also, and the more you know the 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 longer uh, you know it was clear i always knew there was a whatever spiritual religious component there's always been a spiritual and religious component to the ufo right feel but now i feel i strongly believe that is kind of the the whole thing you know that is the 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 point and the role yeah ways for people uh and yeah I I don't think you can, you know, there's always been this tension between the kind of what they used to call the nuts and bolts kind of strand and and the kind of, you know, esoteric spiritualist strand. And they would, you know, there was this kind of push and pull tension. But I kind of feel they've now successfully merged. <laughs> I,
2: I can totally see that. The thing that fascinates me is that, like, I mean, say with the with Bill Ryan and the Serpo stuff. There's like real, there's there's deep like lore there. There's world building there.
4: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah.
2: There there is none of that anymore. And then like even with the people today, like a lot of the um like UFO influencers, just a lot of like um uh, just the people who sort of subscribe to the UFO religiosity without really knowing the history it's fascinating how so many people are so zealous about it while also like not really caring about the actual world building part. Cause one of the most annoying things for me is that like, it's just all the same material and they don't build on anything anymore. Like Do- the Serpo stuff, like Dodie, they all just like ran with it. They had like fun with it. And it was like a fun and interesting story. And now it's just like, it's so boring.
4: <laughs> <laughs> it's been standardized. It's been kind of corporate, literally corporatized because yeah. there's a lot of money floating around now. And it's, you know, M-Quest, again, always has been, but now we're seeing with more transparency the the kind of, uh, just the, the, the way that the, you know, defense contracting and defense industry and, you know, the, whatever you want to call it, UFO industry, are just again absolutely symbiotically engaged mm-hmm.
2: and, and the only way to make money I, I remember i was talking to barry greenwood a few months ago because mm-hmm. i uh I made a project out of getting the complete set of this old um kalamazoo flying saucer club newsletter mm-hmm. um and uh he sent me the i think he sent me four that he'd come across in 40 years mm-hmm. and uh he was telling me about um, MUFON when he was at MUFON in the 70s. And he said that there was more or less like a series of meetings that was like, all right, what are we going to do? What are we going to do with this organization? And he said that they settled on selling aliens because Mm -hmm. that's the only only way to make money in this field. Sure, (laughs) And still kind of is.
4: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, And, yeah, it's, um, you know, again, there are competing frames and you know there's it's aliens are you know aliens are the easy fast sell and then when people get tired of aliens there you know there are ultra terrestrials there are interdimensional there are time traveling humans Uh, do you have do you
2: have your own um sort of some you've seen what can only be described as ufos yourself right
4: yeah, I mean, yeah, UFOs in the purest sense, but with no baggage, Well with with weird, with weirdness attached. Because uh, I saw three, you know, perfect silver spheres in on the edges of Yosemite know, National Park on the on the west side there over. Um, um forgotten the name of the lake but anyway it's a like, perfect it's place
2: cool. to see it i mean the, uh, appar- yeah, yeah, appar- appar- apparently people. yosemite is um one of the only uh one of the only remaining places that there is still
4: uh surface level little folk populations yeah, <laughs> yeah. well maybe they would just maybe i just saw their weather balloons yeah big. they're out for a stroll yeah. but um the, the weird part for me like my two friends i don't think the experience had any resonance for them whatsoever but for me the exciting part was I was reading a very very wonderful and truly strange kind of late 80s abduction book called Into the Fringe by Kyla Turner and that whole book is about these giant silver spheres hovering over their house and, re- and they call them soul harvesters They they basically are the aliens are kind of engaged with some kind of, uh, you know, manipulation or communication with human souls, which they do in these spherical metal, silver spherical craft. And then, of course, I see three of them, two of them fly over, one hovering off the ground. And it's like, I
2: I was thinking the, um, just, just the concept of silver spheres. I didn't think it was going to be an alien story. I thought it was going to be something else weird.
4: Yeah, I mean, they were they weird. It was weird aliens, but, um, but uh, the, the best kind. Yeah, um, but yeah, I, I wouldn't. You know, it, it was instructive in that I, you know, it, it was. I've, you know, I've always been kind of a participant observer in the field. You know, I. Ended up briefly running a, a, a small local UFO group, and I, I love yeah. that part of the
2: book. Yeah, yeah.
4: and I'm, you know, I, 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 I know what it's like to be inside the inside the silver sphere, you know. So, and I think that's important to be able to convey because I also understand what people like Grush are going through and how powerful that is. Just want to interrupt and say I. The uh, Italian uh, ufologists who um, uh, spread the alleged Mussolini uh, crash story were Alfredo Lisoni and Roberto Pignotti, and they wrote a book uh, about Italian UFO crashes in the early t- in about two thousand, I think.
2: Okay, uh, I was going to ask what year, because. I was wondering if it lined up with. Um, I think it was anything else. Two
4: thousand and one, actually. Yeah. Gotcha. But one thing to say about that that I think is important with Gre- the thing that really struck me with the Grush kind of um, testimonies about that Mussolini and came into it was I just felt that was it was perfectly timed perhaps deliberately so to appeal to the kind of you know growing extremist right you're know, operating within the american political sphere and it was as if you know it felt like that was a a, a kind of doggy treat being or a dog whistle being presented to that's them. that's a great like, point i
2: hadn't even thought of that
4: a kind of oh look here's something you might be interested in you know um yeah. Uh, cause,
2: cause, I mean, like, yeah, that the association just between, cause I mean, there's obviously the same thing with the Nazis and paperclip and like their flying saucers coming to the U S so Mussolini now too. And it's just like, there's this association that like, they helped create ufology. Like they're a big part of the story there. You almost have to like them.
4: <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I genuinely think whoever, well, not so much, whoever chose for or decided that that should be a prominent part of the story i think there were two reasons one is that it was new and everyone's sick to death of roswell and area 50 it was new to most people yeah so it was new yeah it was new to 95% of the people yeah. 99% of the people watching or listening but also you know oh we like fa- you know fascism. <laughs> we we we're in- You know, a lot of us around around Congress are interested in fascism. So um, maybe you know maybe. Yeah. And it's of course it's no surprise that the person you know gunning hardest to push this story was uh, Matt uh gates <laughs> um, and,
2: and uh freaking um yeah the, uh, and th- that tim brachette guy who's also just
4: yeah, it's turned out to be pretty
2: nothing up. to like about him yeah. um yeah they're all so it's,
4: and and as you know as you and i both like to remind everybody you know this is exactly what the robertson panel was talking about in 1952 was the concern that ufos would be Used by unfriendly operators, unfriendly actors to sow division amongst you know, and and suspicion and 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 um, suspicion of authority, yeah, you know, of, of the status quo and the government in America. But the interesting thing with this current wave is that it's sowing division and suspicion, not just with the public, but also within the military and political and intelligence spheres. So it's just, you know, creating the kinds of hairline cracks that can then be leveraged at a later date.
2: Yeah, uh, I, I, for some reason, like, I don't remember why I first had this thought, but I, I've, I've wondered a lot about like, who this is for. Like who this is supposed to be for, or even if it's like intended to be for anybody, or just if it's a no there's no downside to doing it, like there's manipulation that can be done on every side. Um, because I mean the everything that's happening, like we're spectators to everything that's happening. We have absolutely no agency in anything that's going on. Um, the uh UFO reports that were put out by the ODNI, those are also like for Congress as guides oh. to de- making policy decisions, also not for us. Mm. Um, so I've I wondered a lot about like, like what the point would be in manipulating Congress specifically in this vein.
4: Um, well, it depends where it's you know where is it coming from. I guess is the 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 question. Yeah, I mean, it can serve lots of different people's. Agendas, and they may not even be the same agenda. I think it's you know it's taken six years to get to this point, or you know, or uh, eighty nine years, uh, yeah, or, yeah, yeah, you know, eighty eighty years, depending on where you sit. But um, yeah, I think that's enough. The six years since twenty seventeen, since the kind of uh, first New York Times story erupted has allowed plenty of people to have time to think, you know, how this might be useful or how it can be used or, you know, what needs to be done to kind of manage the situation. But, it, you know, it as we know, it benefits uh, people who just want to fuck up america yep. <laughs> yeah that's that's generally the it yeah <laughs> benefits people who want to make money from defense contracts and you know um uh research grants and money to set up uh you know ufo research bureaus it benefits the department of defense and the and again, because it allows them to take control of a narrative. Yeah, you know, it forces them to take control of the UFO narrative, which sporadically is mostly you know is, is under control for, for periods, and then you know um, gets uh, agitated and yeah, uh, it
2: gets yeah. pulled out of the box again for us to yeah, play, play with. To, yeah,
4: they have to kind of take control of the situation again, and it allows them to show that they are doing this, which gives them some kind of authority and power and credibility. It also, I think, which is important, and we talk about in Mirage Men, acts as a kind of useful recruiting tool for um, intelligence and military um, organizations because people who are, young people who are interested in UFOs go, oh, actually, maybe if I join the, you know, join the Navy or the air force or the FBI, yep. space the
2: force. space force launched space like the exact force. same time.
4: Absolutely. So it's all good. You know, there are a lot of different people can benefit. And I think that's, I don't think there's one particular reason for it. I think there are just lots of people who've, who, who think that they can make it work for them. Yeah.
2: Well, what's, what's the line? It's, um, UFO is, um, uh, unlimited financial opportunity is that it
4: <laughs> yeah so under uh, under exploited financial opportunity oh yeah there it is yeah something like that but anyway um yeah so i don't yeah i don't i'm not i'm i'm not one for a grand unified conspiracy i'm not either <laughs> it's just multiple strands of people trying to you know make <laughs> make the most out of the situation as we all are you know, by getting to talk about it and, you know, uh, and I, I, I if, I only, mean, if
2: only talking about it was profitable.
4: Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And finally writing UFO books was profitable. Yeah. what, one of the things that's kind of brought me back into the field is seeing what's happened, what's been happening in America and how the, whatever you want to call it, the meme, the virus has got, you know, I, I talk about, in, you know, 15 years ago, I was talking about how the UFO meme was starting to enter into the corridors of power and kind of infect people. And now, yeah, you, know, you can't really get much, much deeper in than we're seeing now. So Yeah, it's true. That's, that's, so I feel, because actually there aren't many, you know, there, there you know, there are, i just feel almost kind of duty bound to and to get involved to be involved you know kind
2: of that's i kind of feel the same way cause i had taken a uh, like before 2017 like before like um to the stars launched or whatever i i had taken like a brief i'd fallen out of it for a little while too um i i was into it because i mean i first got interested in weird stuff when i was in fifth grade because somehow a copy of lauren coleman's cryptozoology a to z wound up in my hands yeah. and uh all i wanted after that was for the loch ness monster to be my best friend and hang out with me <laughs> and um uh, tangentially obviously next step is getting into ufos for Sure. Uh, and then i um i saw a uh i saw like a like a in between eighth and ninth grade during summer vacation i saw like a basketball sized like ball of light just like serpentining right. above my the trees in my backyard oh nice uh right. it's very cool and then yeah. first week of high school i stole uh, um open skies closed minds by nick pope from the library
4: bad choice
2: <laughs> and I, I, I yep i was actually i went to a thing at my high school recently they were honoring like a, it's the 10-year anniversary of a state championship i had for tennis and i was going to bring it back um but then i was thinking should i bring it back i don't want anybody else reading it <laughs> and then it turned out it didn't matter because my high school got rid of its library oh no! right That's it's, it's just, nice. just gone that's shocking. It's super yeah. weird but yeah, yeah I, I was into ufos like all through high school like i was taking it fairly seriously uh and i'd like fucking joined the army when i was 17 <laughs> and uh went to basic training in between junior and senior year of high school and it was also like playing competitive tennis, played college tennis, and I just got busy. Um, Did
4: did you meet any other people who are interested in UFOs in the army?
2: uh, A couple, not like in a serious manner. Like they they watch shows and stuff, but like, yeah, no, not really.
4: Okay. Another question for you is, have you seen any attempts to uh, politicize or exploit Bigfoot? Uh, (laughs) um, that's uh,
2: fascinating uh, actually because our uh, friend of the show Robert Skvarla um, goes to Bigfoot conferences frequently um, and bro it is I mean it makes sense to an extent um, but like it's just all Trump people like it's like Trump flags with Bigfoot on it like it's literally like he was at one where the stage had an American flag and then the like Protestant Christian flag on it um, if you've ever seen that, the big white one with the blue square and the red cross.
4: No, I don't know.
2: No. I, I I went to Christian school. I had to do the Pledge of Allegiance to it every Monday. <laughs> wow, crazy. I think Bigfoot just politicized itself. Like, it, it was just, I mean, they're the type of people who spend time in the woods who would, like, actually, like, be culturally interested in that, wouldn't think it's ridiculous. Mm. Um And, um, but how do you mean exactly?
4: I, I was, I mean, I was actually wondering from the other, I wondered if, they, because is a they, had. I was thinking from the other side, yeah, you know, of things, wondering whether Bigfoot had been either seen as a kind of totemic figure for, say, uh, Native any Native American communities or kind of activists and. Or even envir- you know, environmental. Oh, that's a good, uh,
2: good. Qu- I, I was actually I was looking this up recently because my um I was going through a lot of my uncle's stuff and he was an uh, animal rights activist,
4: hmm.
2: um and I wanted to see if there was any um I haven't put much time into it yet but I wanted to see if like the Earth Liberation Front or anything ever talked about Bigfoot.
4: Yeah, I mean, you would think at the very least they uh, they would make a good sort of figurehead or, but I guess it's not it's not probably not going to do your movement any favors, but uh, to kind of associate with, with, with Bigfoot. But that was just great. Right.
2: The constant association with, like, it's just at these conferences and stuff, it's very Christian right
4: people. Yeah, okay. And that's, um, that also makes some sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, yeah. I wondered if, yeah, it's kind of, I thought there might be um, because the kind of Sasquatch Bigfoot figure was drawn from Native American Mm -hmm. cultural, you know, cultural law. I wonder if there'd be an attempt to re re reclaim it in some way. Yeah, that'd
2: be interesting. From from what I understand, like just from everything I've read about, like just Native American cultures, is they don't like making mascots out of these types of things.
4: Sure, no, um, uh, that's yeah, that probably just betrays my deep lack of understanding of, uh, (laughs) but. I mean, I
2: mean, that's one thing with that has always really annoyed me with the Skinwalker Ranch stuff. Is um, I, I had a coworker a few years ago who um, she has uh, like, the, like first nation nations lineage, and her uh, like I mean like her grandma would tell her about like uh, like hanging out with little folk and stuff, and she when I was because I had like I had one interaction with Brendan Fugel on Twitter it was not good and i just like snapped at him and uh because i mean like you're just for, I, I said the word skinwalker ranch to my coworker, and she like shuddered because you're not supposed to say the word skinwalker it, it gives it power it gives a power yeah, and yeah. brendan Fugel fucking trademarked it
4: <laughs> right yeah i mean that is that is part of a very very long history of option and yeah it's, I,
2: i've always wondered about why specifically because skinwalker the actual like term is like i mean other tribes had their own traditions but the skinwalker term is like a navajo one navajo uniquely exploited by new age communities do you know why that is i've always wondered about that it's no, always I, navajo
4: it's it's not a i mean as, as i have probably revealed clearly revealed i i'm um, <laughs>
2: you
4: know, uh, I it's not an area I'm familiar with
2: I try to bounce it off people whenever I think about yeah, it
4: going back to Bigfoot I something I think I sent you this but do you know this book The Creature, Personal Experiences with Big, Bigfoot by Jan Clement
2: I think you told me about it when you sent me your um, Nearness of You essay
4: yeah, yeah that's where and the book is amazing and I would happily read publish it eighty pages long, self published in nineteen seventy six. You said it was Sold. called Personal Experience with Bigfoot? It's called The Creature, Personal Experiences with Bigfoot, but it's an anonymous author who describes a series of deeply erotic encounters with a Bigfoot he calls Kong, um uh and uh Basically, yeah, they end up having a an intimate relationship. I mean, that's Uh, that's
2: another thing I'm really interested in is like because it seems like the big bigfoot, wild man, like erotica stories go like way back.
4: Yeah, and this is 1976, but again, I imagine you know, I imagine you go deep into the kind of myth, you know, mythological aspects of it, and well, actually, there's a 1930s. Yeah, that's what I was, was nice, nice thinking. Living with a family. That's uh, what I, I vaguely uh, remember that, yeah. Having a sort of sexual encounter with the with the sort of female of the Bigfoot family.
2: I remember when I was in I think early high school, there was a Sundance film that came out called Letters from the Big Man. Right. And, and it was like this like a husband and wife who like moved out to the woods and the husband was a logger or something and was away all day and she like just sort of befriended and sort of had this like romantic tension with a bigfoot that would visit uh i thought that was pretty good um
4: but yeah i'm just finding this uh albert osman that's it uh was abducted by a whole family of sasquatch and spent six days living among among them um but they, he came to realize that the family intended to mate him with the young female. Of the <laughs> and, he tried, and he escaped. He, at which point he escaped. So that was uh, 1920. Well, he claimed it happened in 1924, but he re- told a newspaper about a it. Pioneer. Um, yeah. But um, anyway, sorry. This is um, my favorite kind of genre mashups, I think. Uh, there was a few stories mostly in the early 70s of bigfoots coming out of flying saucers mm-hmm. um and i i just always i love those they're kind of um uh crossover <laughs> crossover uh, lore stories but there's one i can't remember where it's from but the 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 bigfoots are holding like a metal black metal box that kind of z- zaps the human in the encounter
2: that's awesome i gotta find out what that is
4: i uh, just got so many different kind of uh elements being being kind of mashed together yeah and- that's great yeah.
2: Before you go, I have a couple um I have a couple mailbag questions for you. Uh let's see, let's start with um friend of the show, Robert Skvarla, asks, uh, Mark, can you talk about Gene Hungerford's 1950 report for the Rand Corporation, the exploitation of superstitions for psychological warfare?
4: Oh, certainly. Yeah, now this uh in, to, so the British You're a fur researcher and all-round good guy, Nick Redfern. um, I was just
2: talking about him with somebody yesterday. He always seemed like he'd be fun to hang out with.
4: Yeah, we've only met in person a couple of times, but he's a a good egg. Um, But he actually sent me that literally a couple of weeks after I'd sent my manuscript into the (laughs) boat, and it was like the perfect glue that kind of, just brought so many pieces together. So I'm I, um, eternally grateful to him, but I also wish he'd sent it to me a month earlier. <laughs> yeah, That was a... So the, I, I actually ended up writing that on the Mirage Men blog, which is still up there. I wrote a, There's a, a blog piece. Yeah, I was writing at the time after the book came out. There's quite a lot of information up there. It's miragemen.wordpress.com. I should probably tell people <laughs> about <laughs> Um anyway, the Hungerford paper was commissioned by Rand, which was then the you know, Air Force US Air Force's research and development kind of area, and they ended up so sort of branching off into their own um you know, kind of uh military corporate uh information contracting world. Um but it looked at, it was 19 yeah 1951 i think and it it looked at um every, uh, uh, gathered together a number of different uh so sort of, you know documents and stories discussing the ways that uh folklore expo- and superstition and sort of supernatural beliefs had been exploited in uh for, for essentially for psychological warfare and influence operations um and it it talked about um you know um flying the voice of God over the Indian afghani uh, borders in the 1920s having a voice of God broadcast from an airplane telling telling local tribes to kind of uh, you know to, to do the right thing it talked about projecting um this is the virgin, uh, virgin Mary one clouds and over trenches in World War One it talked about um uh Jasper and masculine uh, the the magician in World War two building a kind of devil monster in there to frighten italian villages and in in, uh, in rural Italy but the one thing that it doesn't talk about, which is what struck me as particularly interesting given that it was commissioned by the US Air Force and was written and distributed at an app of Flying Saucer Mania, there's no mention of Flying sources, And that struck me as... That is deep, fascinating. Hard. Yeah. So it, also hap- it was also published within a month or so of the um, lecture series at the... Uh, at University of Colorado given by Silas is this, Newton. This, is, is this the Dr. Gee? Yeah, this is the store this is the point at which like the Aztec UFO crash comes into circulation. It's
2: another great point about like just yeah. information getting out there and being recycled over and over Yeah.
4: Oh, it's just really this timing of it is is really, really strange. It's up on the internet. If you look for but also, if you look on the Mirrorman blog, I wrote about it and linked to the, the documents still up there. Cool. And that's just one. I know Roberts found a treasure trove of other stuff. He's been in the Edward Lansdale archives. Hasn't yeah, he? He, he's us? been
2: he's been killing it lately. He's uh, a yeah. he's got some uh, re- very interesting stuff that he hasn't put out yet about. Um, yeah.
4: yeah, which yes. I might
2: have to uh, have Matt cut from this because I don't think he wanted me to mention that.
4: Okay. <laughs> yeah, I think one of my- real surprise finds that really surprised myself working on Mirror's Men was uh discovering that the black helicopters were real and were silent.
2: (laughs) And just such a novel innovation, like adding a couple extra blades and like bending different.
4: Yeah, it was low fi It was just muffling and and getting the blades to to walk yeah to bend in a in a different way to just minimize the sound. But people on the ground in Vietnam, who encountered them, said you just you just couldn't, you know, they sounded like something very distant while you were looking at them right over your head. It's very, very, must have been very, very strange. Yeah. Anyway, there,
2: there has to be more. I mean, like, I'm glad Robert's doing this because there has to be more mm-hmm. because it's not like they just made two after making that no, innovation. I
4: mean, <laughs> I mean, the story is they were initially being developed for the LAPD um, and then the CIA saw them and just went, Oh no, we want those. Yeah, uh, is it true that it was originally being developed for the LAPD? Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Uh,
2: they um, again their own little fucking army.
4: And the other thing, of course, is well, I think it was probably it meant in a positive way, as in we don't want to terrorize, you know, people on the ground with helicopter sounds. Which, of course, the whole point of police helicopters is, is to is to intimidate, people. right? Yeah. yeah. Right. But anyway, yeah, the you know, the, the the trail, as you would expect, goes cold after the Vietnam War <laughs> in a series of CIA cutout uh, companies. Um, but the, you know, the, of course, in the um, we next source stealth choppers in the excuse me, killing of that um, in the in the uh, attack on the Bin Laden you uh, sort of compound what, ten years or so, and they cr- and one the helicopters crashed and was found to have, you know, have advanced stealth characteristics. So that's where they ended up. But hmm. um, how stealthy, you know, how stealthy they presumably they are, you know, even quieter. And yeah, I doubt
2: I, do- I doubt they didn't make any improvements since then. Yeah,
4: yeah. Anyway, but that's a super interesting. One of the more interesting strands sort of that came out of Mirage Men.
2: All right, I, got um, one, I got one more question.
4: Sure.
2: Uh, we got a friend of the show, Reed Marcus. Um, hey, Mark, in Mirage Men, you wrote about Leon Davidson's theory that George Adamski was targeted by the U.S. military and subjected to the contactee hoax. Do you think similar methods can explain certain other quote-unquote paranormal encounters such as some cryptid sightings or like the Mothman phenomena? And um, b- Before you answer, I want to say... Um, uh, the uh, do you think that? No, nah, I'll save that one for later. Actually,
4: okay. um, I, I mean, I love. I don't know if I subscribe to it, but I, you know, I love the ideas that Leon Davidson puts forward when he, yeah, you know, and they're entirely plausible. You know, they're in, they are entirely plausible, and when. You know and and would not be out of character right.
2: for, for the cia at that time um actually i could bring uh, up the thing i was going to mention because i was going to mention the fact that somehow george adamski and howard menger were both taking photos of the same type of heating lamp
4: Oh, okay
2: you know what i mean like that the oh, classic yeah. adamski saucer okay. howard menger like his photos were the same thing hmm. um which leads me to believe that he, they were steered toward those by somebody,
4: you don't think just how manager and a Damsky collaborated. That's a good idea. Uh,
2: yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, It's fascinating.
4: But um, yeah, I, I, you know, the idea that the part that I love most is that uh, I think D- Davidson suggests that uh, people who are working on developing Tomorrowland at Disney were involved in developing the kind of technology that would. Makidamski and others believe they were flying on a in outer space, and L- like, space. like the
2: stagecraft,
4: the stagecraft kind set built yeah you know, prop design and set building which again is plausible. It's very plausible thing. There's an interesting verified connection which is that one of the designers who worked on the very very earliest uh, kind of pre stealth. Uh, pre sort of F one one seven stealth designs actually built the flying saucer ride at Tomorrowland. Uh-huh. Oh yeah, but oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a kind of weird, you know, it's one of those weird rumor, room sort of you know rumor zones where there is actually some some reality sort of, buried in there.
2: But... And and there, I remember a story from uh, you ever read Phil Patton's Dreamland?
4: a long long yeah when it came out a long
2: time ago excellent book and there's a story and he's talking to somebody one of these um uh, these uh black plane watchers who's telling a story about how uh during world war ii uh there was a japanese sub that had surfaced or something and um basically they just had to hide everything in area 51 um and uh, apparently they called in disney as a like a just stagecraft building quick reaction force to basically just build stuff over top to make it look like the, the classic american way of life that they were fighting to protect mm-hmm. instead of like it being planes it was just like a bunch right. of like just chicken feathers and shit like that
4: yeah. Yeah. no i i i think it's a great possibility you know there is there is definitely some possibility that another rumor that i loved and i've Blanked on his name again. Um, Hang on. Oh, John Mulholland, the American stage magician from the Mm. 50s who did CIA work and wrote the Tricksters manual. He taught CIA agents how to kind of do sleight of hand stuff. But there's a very weird rumor that he was sent. He was definitely sent to investigate paranormal phenomena and it would make a good... It's a good idea. ...X-Files series. But... Mm. He was definitely sent to research paranormal phenomena, st- sat in on séances and kind of got spiritualist sessions and things to see if there's anything that, right, uh, the, CIA could, the CIA could use. But there's a this a rumor that he went to meet the Kelly family in Hopkinsville, Kentucky.
2: Oh, oh okay, okay, yeah.
4: Their, um, goblin,
2: mm-hmm.
4: you know, goblin sighting. Did you know uh, the, Did you know the original ET movie was supposed to be modeled on that? Was it called? What was it called? Night? Uh, I don't.
2: Night. I don't know what it was called. I read about in Robbie Graham's book.
4: Yeah, yeah. Which, oh, r. I. P. R- r-
2: r- 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 Robbie Graham.
4: Yeah, absolutely, a lovely guy. But um, that's right. And then that was going to be ET, and then it sort of morphed into Gremlins.
2: Yeah, I mean, the they thing. even had Rick Baker on set to do like uh the the freaking uh, makeup and stuff.
4: Yeah, yeah. That's Such the- a shame. The idea that John Mulholland was snooping around and interviewing them. I mean, I would imagine he was interested in the kind of folly, uh, twirl, whatever it was that was going on between the members of the family at
2: the yeah, time. The, but, yeah, there's, I, from what I understand, there's a lot of weird stuff going on with that one. There's like a weird sort of like local cult type religion involved with one of the family members or something. I know, yeah, yeah. I, I vaguely remember this, but yeah.
4: But, um, yeah, so coming back to the, um, sort of set dressing and kind of, you know, literally, um, you know, building, building UFOs and putting the contact keys on them. I I wouldn't put it past them. And there's a lot of space to do it. You also have strange, I think I mentioned it marriage, when you get strange, uh, details like they're often given a drink, um, Mm -hmm either before what isn't a Dansky given a drink when he's in the limo being taken to his contact. I think so. Uh, yeah. Just strange things like that, that just sound, uh, yeah, or like uh, the,
2: the Villas Boas gas. Sure.
4: I mean, the, the Villas Boas story is a whole other yeah. thing, but, um, you know, if you were, if you were kind of writing a fictional account of, uh, you know, a a a, a a a a sort of MK Ultra style flying saucer uh, deception. You know what Adamski writes is pretty pretty much perfect. Me yeah, so, Right. It's a, it's a strong. It's a, definitely a, a. I would not throw it out, but I don't think we'll ever. You know, we'll yeah. never get any kind of uh, uh, kind of paper trial for something like that. Oh like, yeah,
2: no, definitely not. But yeah. the uh, yeah the um the the story about the Disney stagecraft building stuff is because uh, when I read that story in in a uh, Dreamland by Phil Patton, I tried looking for just anything about um, if anybody had written about Disney, the Disney company's uh, defense contracting. Nobody has.
4: Sure, well, you know uh, they made those films with Vannevar mm-hmm. Brown in the in the fifties. I'm just trying to find this. I mean, this is maybe not the way to do it, but let me just quickly see if I can find this reference. Um, it's in a, this uh, history of the stealth program. Oh, interesting! Published a couple of years ago. Uh, Disneyland, one three one. Anyway, maybe your listeners don't want to just. No, I, I. This is very up the ghost flick, stories alley. Flicking through, uh, <laughs> flicking through this book. Um. Can I find it? Oh yeah. So, um, yeah. Uh, so a guy called Dick Scherer at Lockheed who uh, designed the uh, uh, teacup ride at, uh, at. Oh really? Who then? Who later was involved with designing the stealth there?
2: Uh, That's amazing.
4: So it's quite a quite a. Um,
2: promotion there
4: yeah
2: geez <laughs> um,
4: anyway um you want to
2: cut
4: it off there sure i can wrap up oh yeah i can feel i can feel the the drop um, <laughs> um but it's been great i've enjoyed myself yeah a i did um I and just a happy, pleasure. no pleasure likewise and, and you know happy to if we can find other things to uh talk about i'm happy to do you know in a in a on air setting, I'm happy to do so. I very I, much I, appreciate that. Yeah, um, and I appreciate your enthusiasm for for Mirage Man as well. Yeah, it's
2: uh, yep. can't recommend it to people enough. I mean if like it just it's it think to just have the tool set that you need to tackle the UFO problem responsibly, I think it's like number one you gotta go to.
4: Oh thanks. I mean that was that was the intention. And if um, if the publisher i'm talking to about this follow-up book that's meant to be even more basically it's meant to be the book you can hand to anyone to kind of give them a a, a pretty deep and broad understanding of awesome. what's going on so um,
2: let's, what what, what, let's what about um uh mirage man up to date is that gonna happen
4: i don't think so no i mean it's a weird situation in that original publisher Constable Robinson, which was a really old English publisher. They went bust and
5: nah. they've
4: been bought up by Little Brown, who I think, I mean, I don't even know. I think they must have reprinted the book. I'm, but um, I'm actually talking to them at the moment, trying to find out what's happening. <laughs> wow. They, but They did an um, audio book, which I was very grateful for. The audiobook is excellent. Go. And that and people tell me yeah you know, the little bits I've heard were really good and people have told me it's really, you you and others have said it's great and I th- I suspect they must have reprinted the book but um it's crazy I, you don't know <laughs> which is I'm very pleased about but I I yeah it'd be nice to nice to see somebody. <laughs> so,
2: it'd be it'd be cool if they used the uh, the old subtitle
4: yeah I think I mean I think they I don't think they they've changed anything but no I, I would like to have written so actually a. A kind of countercultural Russian publisher individuum, um who we'd been I'd been speaking to in a publishing context a few, a few years ago before obviously before all the horror in Ukraine. Um, they've recently put out a Russian translation which has a, which I actually wrote an after a new afterward for which kind of. Um, would would work well for a you know a new English language edition? Maybe I should put that up on the Mirage Men blog. Just, That'd be awesome. It? When was the last time you posted on it? Oh, like twenty fifteen. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I basically my my other I had plans for other books at the time, and the then publisher was not enthusiastic, and I then my own publishing world kind of became somewhat uh in, expanded and just took over really so uh,
2: uh, one last question um what's um what's your favorite book your uh strange attractors put out
4: oh i can't that's like asking you what, what about,
2: about oh what about lately <laughs>
4: um I, it, I mean we put out so much stuff i couldn't possibly um i'll tell you what actually directly relevant to what we've been talking about um, something that was meant to come out a few years ago, which I'm very excited about is the first ever monograph of the um, Romanian american the artist outside artist Ionel talpazan it's um amazing and that's gonna be incredible. that's a kind of a dream come true for me and the um Daniel uh, Wojcik, who's put it together. Is a academic who's written about kind of apocalyptic beliefs and things in the past, but also turned, he was the uh, kind of uh, academic advisor for um, Kristen Gallano, one of our authors, who's now a curator at the who is a curator at the Henry Ford Museum in oh, wow. uh, Detroit. And um, she came around to our studio, and she was visiting London. And said, "Oh." my old teacher at university had loads of these paintings on it's his so wall. cool and, and as a result we're now putting out this <sighs> but yeah um that's awesome collected has like you know has something like 200 images oh, and, and and spent had several interview did several long interviews with Talpazan over the years <sighs> um so it's gonna be that's gonna be great amazing yeah so that's that i'm um, hoping we will be out next year it's been for various reasons been delayed but awesome that is exciting
2: that is exciting i'm excited for that too
4: but anyways cool all right it's been a pleasure bradley
2: yeah you too i very much appreciate this